1: Today we're going to be tackling a topic that is uh, so important and so little um, given, enough, <laughs> given enough attention to, except of course by my guest and some others, but for the most part, um, people are not realizing just how much this is affecting America, affecting um, families and uh, affecting violence and so on. Uh, today's show is called Fatherlessness in America: The Secret Soul Killer. We just had uh, Father's Day recently, and for you know some lucky people, <laughs> uh, children, they and and wives or women, they ha- enjoy the day with balloons and cakes and doing all kinds of fun things. But there are families who do not have a father in their life. For various reasons, um, such as the father abandons the mother, their baby mama, uh, before the baby is born, after the baby is born, the father dies because of uh, engaging in a lifestyle that is very dangerous, like substance abuse and gangs and so on. Um, and they, they leave the woman, but they also leave their kids. And... Um, not to, say that, not to say that these men choose to die, but certainly by following those kinds of lifestyles, they know they're putting themselves at risk and not really being concerned about being there for their kids, uh, for the child's life. Um, today's guest is Lee Habib. He's the executive producer of a film called The Streets Were My Father, a story of hopelessness and redemption. And... Um, this story is, um, this film is part of um, the, um, he's, he's an executive producer of this film, and this is an American, part of, it's, it's, let me try this begin, it's an Our American Stories film production. Um, he is the CEO and host of Our American Stories, which is a nationally syndicated nonprofit storytelling show heard on 330 stations across the country. He's also a weekly Newsweek essayist. So welcome to the show, Lee. Thank
2: you so much for having me on.
1: Um, I watched the film. I watched it twice, actually. (laughs) Um, And it is an amazing story. These men um, who are featured on the story, these are uh, men from Chicago, uh, inner-city Chicago men, African-American and Hispanic, and um, they have such insight into their problems, into their fatherlessness, and um, into how it affected them, and they are so um, verbal, so eloquent when they talk about it, and, and also so... Um, they. they you know, for men especially, lead, leading us into uh, a very personal, intimate, vulnerable spot in their life, and yet they do it, as I said, um, very very emotionally, uh, very eloquently. So let's start with, well, I guess we should start first with um, the uh, your your production, your being um, the CEO of uh, and host of of our America forum I' having problems with that' our American stories, but you're the CEO and host of it and let 's start with that. What made you um, develop this program?
2: I've done a lot of big national political shows, and they were political in nature, and more often than not, I found that sometimes I was disagreeing with my own party and 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 party is not what I held allegiance to. I love my country more. I love my wife more. I love God more. And, and, and one day I just said, I just don't want to do politics anymore. Um, and, and I love politics, and it's important discount the struggles going on today between the left and the right. And America's had struggles before and huge debates going back to the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War I, World War II, the Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Movement. And we've been an ongoing debate and discussion uh, for the last few centuries, and it's good. Um, people don't get shot for having a debate. Um, we turn out presidents, and new ones come in, and no one dies. Um, it's a miracle, actually, what we have in this country—the level of freedom, tolerance. But the camps have gotten so hardened that I—I I started going around the country and saying to my Democrat friends, "Name one thing Donald Trump did well." They couldn't. I go to my Republican friends, "Name one thing Barack Obama, Obama did well." They couldn't. And I thought, wow. This is officially a pathological disease. It's like neither person in either tribe can admit that there's a higher tribe. And so I thought, what would happen if I were to just tell stories and only stories about things that we could agree on? Um, and in person and in private, when you take away the political, you can agree on all kinds of things. Like, do I want my child to be self-sufficient and be able to take care of himself in case he got hit by a truck? Do I want to give one kid an allowance that I have, it's the same as the other when one does work and the other doesn't. And when I ask these kinds of questions at colleges, or just basic existential questions about love, and life, I get 90% agreement on most of them. And so I thought, let me just tell the stories about a good and decent country and good and decent people, and we just are going to tell the good stories. Let everybody else tell the bad stories. Let the news tell the story of the fire and the train wreck and the murder. But for every fire, train wreck, and murder, there's someone around the block who helped a stranger. There's some cop. For every cop who did something wrong, there are 500 cops who did something beautiful. Um, For every priest that molested somebody and a a parish that covered it up, there are 500 priests who did something beautiful, so on and so forth. Um, And so that became the genesis for the show. Five years ago, I started it, and I've, I've, I've done five of the top 20 shows in the country in my life. And this one is the fastest growing show of any I've ever done. We're on two hours a night now in 340 affiliates. We added 10 more since I last uh-huh. spoke to your producers. Um, and it's, yeah. Americans are craving positive role models, heroes they can be themselves, flawed heroes. They're seeking love in stories, redemption in stories. They're looking for beauty in stories. And I think that's why we're succeeding.
1: That's really interesting. Um, so, so basically, um, it is telling the stories like what you were just saying. Like, for example, uh, one policeman who does something bad, and you're telling the stories of the others who do something good. Yeah. Uh-huh.
2: The media is not interested in good cop stories. The media is not interested in when, a, when a white cop shoots a white person or when a black cop <laughs> shoots a black person. They're interested in only mm-hmm. one story, when a white cop does yeah. something to a black person. And that's it. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just the media. It's what they do. And the world should have known what happened to George Floyd. But let's remember that George Floyd isn't exactly a hero, right? He's not Rosa Parks. He shouldn't have been killed. He shouldn't have been murdered. But, my goodness, this is not a life, if you were an African-American mom, that you'd say, this is the life we want to model our son after. Ridiculous. And and so I just said, you know, we're all tired of this narrative of white hates black Rich hates poor, gay hates straight. It's just not the America most of us know. Walk around a shopping mall, look around and see how well. This many ethnic groups, this many religions, this many types of people, the sexuality, the, the faith walk, the, and, and we don't run around shooting each other. Most of the deaths in this country are either suicides or gang violence. So we, if you took away gang violence, you take away, and suicide, you take away 80% of the deaths in the country by, by handgun. 80%, 80%. Um, and, so that, and so what causes those things? What causes all this gang violence? Well, we know what it is, and it's fatherlessness. Um, and, and, and it's only fatherlessness. And there are places in white communities where there's a lot of poverty, no fathers, and there are meth gangs. And inner cities in, in Hispanic neighborhoods, in barrios and in inner cities around this country, where there, are no, where there are no fathers in mass, the boys will get together and form gangs. And where there are fathers, there are no gangs. And where there are no gangs, there's no mass murder. hmm
1: hmm
2: There may be the individual well, mass yeah. shooter, but that's, that's a very different thing. 700 murders a year in Chicago. 700. There have only been 120 mass deaths from school shootings since Columbine, 120. But you'd think it was 50,000. Meanwhile, 780 kids last year, mostly young between the ages of 15 and 30, almost exclusively male, by the way, almost exclusively male, and almost exclusively it is men going to jail. I mean, and no, by the way, no one accuses the police force of being sexist, right? Even though there's a disparity. That disparity between men in prison and women in prison is not because of sexism. It's because of the differences in how fatherlessness is manifested in men and women. In yes. women, it yes. leads to pregnancy. Uh, sexual promiscuity. In boys, it leads to violence.
1: Yes. Um, so we know
2: this. No, no sociologist, psychiatrists
1: debate those points. Nobody. Yes. No, that's true. It's interesting that you, that you, I mean, I agree with you that um, we are hungry for these positive stories. There are too many, uh, way too many. I mean, that is, that is if it bleeds, it leads, and that is what the news concentrates on. Um, it was rather brave of you <laughs> to, uh, knowing that uh, good stories don't usually, uh, you know, um, well, don't usually make it to the media, you know, maybe because they're not, Or at least the media thinks they're not. uh, People don't want to watch them, but in fact, you have proven differently. Well, let's. I want to go back to that at the end because um, this idea of of um, what will help America more. um, But but let's talk about your your film first because um, I I just watched it again and it's just (laughs) you know it's sort of you, you. you have First of all I want to know what why with all of these stories that you talk about on Our American Stories what made you pick out this story to do a whole film on
2: Well we do stories every night on our show and they're about everything it could be George Washington or Henry Ford or Madam C J Walker but when we play these stories as audio documentaries is what which is what our radio show is there's no interviews it's real I have 25 full-time writers and producers and another 40 contributors. So I have a very large staff. And I have one rule. Uh I don't want to hear your voice. I don't want to hear the producer's voice. And I don't want to have any opinions. I just want the story from the subject person. And if it's somebody who is dead like Abraham Lincoln, then I want to hear from the great Lincoln author about Lincoln not my opinion about Lincoln, just the expert on Lincoln. Uh Um, and Uh a storyteller. He's a storyteller. So when we played these stories last year, the overwhelming response from the audience, we want to hear it again. We ended up playing those stories, each of the three stories we feature in this documentary, four more times, and people kept saying, I'd like to hear it again. It was so inspirational. I have a kid in jail. I just in jail, or I never went to prison, but I identify with the guy in that prison because I made some bad choices of my life, and I created my own prison. Now, it wasn't bars, but my goodness, we all know what it means to create a prison in your life, Um, and then how do you get out of that prison? How do you reshape yourself and become the better version of yourself? Um, How do you do that? And most people want to know, how can I be a better version of myself? And can you show me stories that inspire me to do that, that feel true and that are true? And when you're listening to these three guys and their struggles and their honesty and their their authenticity, um, and their 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 joy in sharing their vulnerability, um, and that's a joy for men. Men don't do this well. We are not good at this, and we need to learn how to do it better. Um, because many suffer around us when we're, because of this lack of vulnerability. But these men are teaching all kinds of men in similar circumstances that there's a better life ahead of you. Um, And all three of these guys also had a God story. And, you know, whatever your listeners may or may not think about their individual walks with God, some may have them, some may not. There is no question that the power of God to shape and change lives is one of the most significant factors in human history. And to to ease that out of the picture and act as if only medicine alone, science alone, can get us to meaning and purpose, is to miss the point of the faith journeys of, you know, billions of people around the world.
1: Yes. Well, now, um, you know, you say three people, but, I mean, I guess there were three you took three main characters. I mean, there were more than three people who told their stories in the film.
2: Well, in the end, the most of the airtime is spent on Carlos Colon, Leslie Williams, and, and Lewis. And, and, and those three guys occupy about 90% of the film. So, And we, we focused on those three because they had very different father walks. One, if you recall, Leslie had a father, but he was always drunk. And he was mean. Um, Lois had a father who was rarely there, told his son, never smile in a picture. Never smile in public because you'll look weak. He never knew why his father mm. played that tough guy part until when he was 15. He found out that his father had been murdered in a drug deal gone wrong. His father was a gang banger. And, uh, and, he, and, and then the other person in the film that takes up most of the time, Carlos Colon, never knew his father until much later in life. When he did finally meet his father, it turns out his father didn't have a father, and his father didn't have a father. So you're talking about a multi-generational, fatherless experience.
1: Yes. Now, Leslie Williams, um, was really uh, he really stood out. Um, he yes, he talked about how his father was drunk all the time and uh and then um he presumably his father died from from substance abuse, from the alcohol, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Um and but he was I mean, you know, he, he in some of the interviews, some of the um portions he was dressed in this uh, really fancy kind of shirt. Like you could tell he took so much pride in his appearance in, in pretty much all of the uh, shots of him, different um, segments, different, uh, uh, I guess, segments. He, you know, he's always so, um, he has so much pride and, um, and he's dressed so, you know, in such a distinguished kind of way um, and speaks so well. And he cries on camera
2: yeah yeah well you know think Um, about his journey right he think about his journey and when you're when you're and that's what i love about this is you get the whole journey from these men from the time they were born to the time they were saved to the time they had to learn what it meant to be a man like no one had ever taught him before what does it mean to be a man uh and what is it what does it mean for leslie williams to be leslie williams who am I to be? There's this great scene where in the movie where he talks about. If you remember, I, I I'm, you know, I, I'm tired. I'm tired of this. God's mm-hmm. got to have something more in store for me. If there is a God, if you're out there, it, it, there's got to be more to life than gangs and prison. And if there is, show me. And of course, outsiders come in, and a ministry appears, and mentors appear. And when he comes out of prison, he's met at the gate by strangers who love him. And then they make sure that he doesn't go return to the neighborhood he grew up in. And remember, he said, I don't want to go back to that neighborhood. I don't want to go back to my old ways. I want to be born anew. I want to start fresh. My goodness, how many of us have said that in a relationship? I want to do this over. I want to say I'm sorry. I want to seek forgiveness. I want to put my errors behind me and reconstitute myself and learn to be a better version of myself. I think this is every human being's walk. anyone who tells me they haven't had that fervent prayer or that discussion with a, with a with the doctor or somebody, is, I think just a stone-cold liar. Um, we've all had these passages in our lives, people we've either betrayed or not lived up to our expectations or let down. Um, and we, we've harmed people. Uh, as good as we all are, we harm people. And we also get harmed by people. What do we do about that? Each one of these men, what was fascinating, is they took ownership of their lives, despite the fact that they didn't have fathers or, or mothers that were proper role models. They learned to forgive them, and they learned that they needed to be moral agents of their own life and be the mothers and fathers to their kids that they weren't. And once you take ownership of your faults, once you take ownership of your problems and don't pass them off, on other people or society, you're halfway on your road to getting better. Once you acknowledge, "I'm an alcoholic, I need help," you're you're on your way. That doesn't mean it's easy, but if you can't acknowledge the problem, if you can't take ownership of the problem and agency of the problem. Then no doctor, no no god can help you. Nobody can help you. That's what yeah. this film is really about. Well, in the end, that's what's so interesting about these guys. They take ownership of their crimes completely, Yes, and it's their doing.
1: Well, I need to stop you at this point. I don't know if you heard the music, but we need to take a break. This is all very fascinating. When we come back, we're going to be talking about some of the other men in this film. Um, And also, I wanted to ask you how you chose these particular men. So, stay tuned. Um, My guest today is Lee Habib. He is the filmmaker, the executive producer of The Streets Were My Father, a story of hopelessness and redemption. So, stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
3: stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time, the number 1 internet talk station where your opinion counts. Voiceamerica.com.
0: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman
1: yourself. And welcome back to Dr. Carol house and your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. I want to get right back to my guest, Lee Habib, who is the executive producer of The Streets Were My Father, a story of hopelessness and redemption. Now, we were talking... Well, we started talking about one of the uh, main characters in the film. Now, I shouldn't really say... Char- I mean, he, he is in a sense, but he is very real. This is, these are true stories, very true. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, how you found the men who were in
2: the film? Sure. We have a, you know, we're on every night, uh, all around the country. We're actually now the 14th biggest show in the entire country. So we've grown well, from the 1,100th biggest show to the, we cracked the top 20 this year. So the bigger we get, and I routinely ask the, the listeners, Hey, if you have a story of your own about redemption, about love, about courage, about entrepreneurship, about faith, um, real life story, send them to us. Well, somebody put us on to these stories in Chicago from a guy named Manny Mill, who runs the Koinonia House. He's in ministry in Chicago. Of course, he was like, "I don't want to talk about me. I want to talk to you about the men." Some of these men. Uh-huh. And that was the introduction to to these stories. And there were Manny's ministered to a hundred men. We talked to eight, and then we focused on. We did five, and then really focused on three for the film. Uh huh. And that's okay. how we got there. We thought these three stories stood out. Moreover, they each represented a different dimension of fatherlessness um, that we thought run the, ran the gamut. From the present father, who's mean and a bully and horrible, and so bullying and mean that you wish you didn't have a dad, to the drunk who's rarely there, to the guy who is never there. Um, and all, you know, the dad who's in the home, but he's violent and mean and beats people up, that is almost worse than not having a father. We mm-hmm. had many men tell us that in our, in, our, oh. in our listening audience who thanked us for this show and then thanked us for the movie, too.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's talk about one of the other ones. We talked about Leslie Williams um, and Louis Dooley. Yeah, Louis so was a really interesting
2: character. Yeah, Lewis, Lewis was, uh, he, he knew his dad slightly. His dad wasn't in the picture a lot, but enough. And his father was real tough. And he's that father I was telling you about that never let his son smile in a picture. There were these great pictures that he shows of the young son, like, snarling at the camera. And the father snarling, too. And he didn't really understand why his father was telling him, you've got to be tough, kid. You've got to be mean, and you can't smile. But it turned out his father was a gangster. And his father got murdered uh, when he was 15. And he didn't have any idea his dad was a gangster. He just figured his dad, he didn't even really know what his dad did for a living. So you can imagine, dad couldn't have been around that much. Because sooner or later, you're going to ask yourself, dad, are you a milkman? Dad, are you a, a teacher? Dad, are you a military man? So, you know, it was, it was vague. But what the son did in reaction to this was, was well, what sometimes sons do. He's so identified with the pictures of his dad the tough reputation his dad had, then he became his father. He started wearing his dad's clothes. He actually, by the time he was 17, he was a top-flight drug dealer, and he just replaced his dad, and the life was <laughs> admirable. The one thing he knew about his dad is his dad had the respect of the streets. The, the people on the streets feared his father, and he liked that, and he thought that was neat. Um, so that was his That was the way he was modeled on masculinity. And, you know, that's what a dad does. A dad can teach us about what it means to be a man. It's harder for a woman to teach a man how to be a man than a man can. It doesn't mean in all cases, but generally boys want to model themselves after manly influences around them. And that's what Lewis did. By the time he was 19, he was looking at a life sentence in prison by the time he was 19.
1: Yes, and he talked about how the reason why he uh, copied his father in so many ways, the way he snarled, the way he dressed, all of this, um, and, you know, it's so funny because his father really, the pictures that you showed of the father, he really does seem to be like the stereotypical gangster, but Lewis said, um, "I the way that I tried to cope with losing my father was to become him in every which way, and, of course... Then, um, and he almost got murdered, uh, like his father, but, um, you know, but he just, uh, he just consciously and unconsciously uh, repeated a lot of the things that he thought that his father, that he saw his father do, and he wanted to sort of crawl into his father, you know, to, to be connected to him, to, to somehow maintain that connection by crawling into him in various ways. What about yeah? I think karma? you're right.
2: And, and he, by the way, he says that about himself, right? Isn't it interesting yeah. to watch these guys clinically look back, and not in an awful way, not in, a, not in a way of ascribing himself as a victim, but just in a cold, analytical, clear way, saying, I, just, I guess I was trying to get closer to my dad. He didn't know it at the time, yeah. that's what he was doing. But looking back, he was clear. And then when he was sitting in that prison cell going, and then I realized I, I, I had followed the wrong role models, and God didn't shape me this way. No God, if you believe in one, would. So who was I to be? And that became my work and my purpose in prison, was to find out who I was and who I was going to become. And it's spectacular. It's spectacular.
1: Yes. Um, also, he talked about having being the... Uh, a son of a black father and a white mother and being teased when he was a child, you know, picked on because of that. Um, Okay. Let's talk about Carlos. Carlos Carlos is, um, his his story is
2: so surreal and so good. And I think of of all the guys, he explained the allure of the gang life the best because I had always thought as a person who had a, I, I had what I have called a father privilege. And I think, Forget white privilege. The, the privilege worth any, you, which you can prove is the father. I'd rather grow up poor, working class, with a loving father and mother in the household, than rich with no father any day.
1: Yeah. It's a father privilege. Yeah.
2: Because to have that love and, and, is, is more important than any stack of money. Um, and you as a, as, as a doctor know what, what money with no love can do to a human being. Um, It's not a good combination. Um, And and, and so Carlos, he he describes the appeal of the gangs. And the appeal is, it's manifest in a few different ways. First, when you're 13, you're getting recruited by some 22-year-old. That's your father figure. Second, you now have this camaraderie with this group. Third, and this is interesting, it's the sense of adventure. You know, young men with their dad will go fishing or hunting or they'll, they'll drive something fast and they'll go box mm. or they'll, they'll go do the things that are boy adventures. And by the way, more and more girls are exploring the adventurous life, and that's a beautiful thing. But, but boys need that, that and, and many boys do. And what, what Carlos found was that the gangs were that adventure, getting into fights against other gangs, standing his ground and fighting and being able to go back to the hood and say, I stood my ground like there was some kind of an honor code like you'd have in a Marine Corps unit. You know, there was a, a, uh-huh. a thrill of battle and, and, and also, and this is really important, the protection of the gang, because you get protection from that gang, from the other gangs. Well, this is what a father is supposed to do, protect the family um, and, mm-hmm. and provide the adventure and the model and, and the camaraderie and the family. Um, and so this became his surrogate family and And I loved what he said about the beefs of gangs. He said, you know, when you're in a gang, you inherit all their beefs. And "And the thing about being in a gang is you don't even know why you're mad at the other gangs. Somebody (laughs) shot somebody who shot somebody else. And it's Hatfield and McCoy stuff. It's a terrible way to live. But it's all he knew. It's all he knew.
1: Well, Well, you know, one of the things that I found really fascinating was how for each of them, and there are some other men, too, that talk in the film. And for each of them, um, there's the, there, it's like they're addicted. Well, they talk about how the gang becomes the father and the streets become their father, which is why you named it. The streets were my father. Um, and, and they, even though some of them in different ways, one went with an uncle, one went, um, had a, an aunt, um, some were when they were in prison, they, you know, um, had found uh, they were they were redeemed in one way or another, um, but they all felt the uh, pull. Even once they were going on a good path, a, a positive, healthy path, path, they all felt—or not all, but many of them—felt the pull to go back to their old gang. And like, for example, the one. I don't remember which, what the name was of this one, but um, the man who got out of prison, well, no, got um, probation for a crime, and his wife came to pick him up, and they went on the train, and they were supposed to go up north, and he passed the stop where his gang hung out, and he was like, it was like uh, an, an addiction. He was just, or, or a, mess, a hypnosis. He had to get off on that stop. And then things went downhill from there.
2: Yep. And that was Eddie. um, And and look, that was Eddie. And, and uh, Eddie expressed that Carlos also expressed that it was a high. He goes, look, I had a high from being in the game. When you get into a fight and there's a shootout, he goes, your adrenaline rush. It's like what gamblers experience, right? You go, people gamble. If you win $10,000 on a bet, Why would you want, and this is what separates the gambler from somebody who goes gambling. If I go gambling twice a year in Vegas, and I play the roulette wheel, and I play 36, and I win the $1,000, I go home. The gambler, the gambler puts the $1,000 down again. Because what he wants is the adrenaline rush. And he's hooked to the adrenaline rush. And that's not what most of us go to Vegas for. We go to play a little Poker and have a nice dinner with the wife, and we don't get an adrenaline rush from playing poker. We just play a little poker. That's why we're not gambling addicts, most of us. But the ones that are, it's not about winning. It's about the action. It's not about the cash that you comes across. It's the cash you bet and what's going to happen next. And they end up all, all gamblers, hardcore gamblers, addicts lose everything. And it's not about winning. It's about the next risk. It's about the next. Loss, and it's a it's a dark cycle, and that's these guys. Carlos admitted he goes. Look, it was a high. I was addicted to it, and I didn't do drugs. He said some people do drugs. Being in the gang was my high.
1: Well, you know, it's so sad though that um, these men, uh, these specific men, and men who are just like them, in every city in America, don't get intervention and I know we're going to talk about the ministries and so on after prison, but I mean, don't get intervention before they get off the train to go back to their um, old haunting grounds, um, old haunts, <laughs> hunting grounds and haunts. Um, they, if so, you know, you just kind of like wish you could stop the film <laughs> and say, wait, whoa, um, you know, don't do that. Uh, you're just going to end up in as bad shape as you were before. You're going to end up in jail or, you know, you're going to end up dead or addicted or some other bad result. It's really sad that there aren't more uh, resources for intervention at these middle levels. Do you know what I mean?
2: Well, it is. And, And there actually are, look, we always have to remember that, but as, as much as we think it's a resource problem, the question is: Are there enough resources? If the, the 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 problem is that there's no one there to raise the child. I mean, in some of the neighborhoods, you're looking at 70 and 80 and even 90 percent fatherless rates. So you can get x amount of social workers into that space, but it's real. And I've known a lot of these valiant social workers and a lot of the probation officers. But at a certain point, if you can't, if you can't, uh, you can't throw enough bodies at it. um, And and that becomes the problem. And then when do you get them? You got to get them on the back end, regrettably. You can get them early or you can get them late. Um, In between, really hard. And so there are a lot of good early intervention programs that save a lot of the kids from the gang life. Um, But the ones that they tend to have at least some male figure in their life. It's really interesting when you look at it. It's an uncle. It's a cop. It's a coach. Coaches serve a tremendous uh, male mentorship function in a lot of dysfunctional neighborhoods. If it weren't for sports and the military, by the way, because a lot of these young men, what does save them is they they just get a ticket to the Marine Corps or the Army. And then they join a different kind of gang. Uh, But there are rules. And it's he's got a gun, but... He's got a gun with rules and 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 yeah. and and and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and a and a set of discipline and habits that creates a male uh, a, a male uh, uh, camaraderie that reflects the gangs without the without the crime and dysfunction. And so many of the people who yeah. go through the military um, never come back to those streets ever. They just go not going back. I'll get taken down by the, the forces on those streets. I'm no. out. And I'll come back and visit. I'll recruit, um, but I've got to stay off those street corners because the poll is so strong. it's so strong.
1: Yes, yes. All right, we need to take another break now. Um, when we come back, we will continue talking about this. Um, particularly, you know you uh, the other problem, or uh, you know you alluded to it with social workers and so on, probation officers, the problem is there that even for the well-meaning ones, and they all start out well-meaning, uh, they are just flooded with so many people that they are supposed to be taking care of, you know, assigned to them, that it's impossible to really give any kind of meaningful, uh, for, for the most part, any kind of meaningful help. Well, when we come back, uh, we will talk more with my guest, Lee Habib. We're talking today about fatherlessness in America, the secret soul killer. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and we'll be right back.
0: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, where we're talking today about uh, an amazing film uh, having to do with fatherlessness. Really, you know, it's a... (laughs) it's not a film about fatherlessness. It's, it's real, it's men um, who are fatherless, have been fatherless throughout much of their life and the impact um, that this has had on them. And uh, because, again, as I said at the very beginning of the show, this is not something that is really taken as seriously as it should be by uh, general society. We're going to be talking in a minute about... Um, you know the religion and and um their efforts to uh particularly with these in this film the the um in particular with these men they were basically saved redeemed by uh, eventually you know through a lot of pain um and gunshot wounds and uh prison times and all of that they eventually found their way to um a ministry and with uh, with a father, so to speak, you know, who a father figure, um, who really filled that role. I just want to. Before we get to that, though, I just wanted to mention something. Um, I was the uh, um, ex, the well. First of all, I do expert witness work, and so I'm a forensic psychiatrist. So I do spend a fair amount of time in prisons. Um, you know, um, doing primarily for the defense, doing um, interviews, examinations of these men and trying to figure out what was really going on when they committed the crime or if they committed the crime or whatever. Um, But I wanted to mention that I also worked um, as the psychiatric technical consultant to a show called Paternity Court. Are you familiar with that show?
2: I'm not. I'm not.
1: I'm not sure that it's on anymore, really. Uh, I think the I think the COVID did it in, but um, but anyhow, it was a, a really it was an eye opener. It was a show where people would come, you know, um, um, a mother, a woman who gave birth to a child, and a man who she thinks is the father. Um, sometimes they were married, sometimes they weren't. Sometimes you know um, the man suspects that the woman lied to him that he's really not the father, and so on. But in any case, what what really opened my eyes to something: um, there are some women who uh, just kind of think of having babies with men, you know, haphazardly. Um, and yes, of course, it comes for that is one of the effects of the women not having a father. But haphazardly, some with the intention of having babies um, to try to get support from the men, from the fathers, to live off the, that support. In other words, to not have to go to work, but to have babies and um, and just have a, a steady income from the fathers. Of course, not all the fathers do pay child support. That's a little fly in the ointment of that plan. But um, but it, it was just kind of uh, surprising to see how many women really, you know, unabashedly, unashamedly, just, oh, yes, this is what I'm doing kind of thing. Now, we know women do that with um, sports stars and so on, but that's because <laughs> you know that's to uh, to find someone who's very rich, a sports star, star, for example, um, and then be set for life with having their baby. But this—that's not exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about more of a um, not as high, not not the men not being um, in high socioeconomic of uh, a in a high socioeconomic status, you know, not, not really being rich, not having a lot of money, but having some money, or the woman hopes he has some money to be able to support her if she has his kid. Um, so that, I just want to, you know, that's it. So, you know, this whole idea of baby mamas, you know, um, anyhow, it's, that's not the way to go either because these women were not in the end, it doesn't really work out whether the man is rich or not. Um, because you know, he becomes, He's not present in any case. Um, if that was if that was the kind of relationship, or if it was a one night stand, and it was purposely to do this, so that's just another little aspect to this. But let's—I don't know if you would like to comment on that.
2: No, look, I, I think this is a dimension of this problem too, and 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 who knows what's going on in that young woman's mind, right? Um, and, and what what was the story of her upbringing? Why did she? Make those kinds of decisions. Why does she look at the world this way? By the way, I love asking young people, hey, if you have children, would you want your daughter to meet a guy at the age of 16, have the guy get her pregnant and have the guy leave? Not one hand goes up. Not one hand goes up because nobody would want that for their kid. So how do we raise kids to not make those decisions or want that for themselves? These are big questions. Because there are a lot of girls rolling yes. around thinking, if I'm a baby mama, I can be, have my own place, get some benefits, and nobody has to tell me anything. My parents can't tell me what to do, and my boyfriend can go, right. you know, take off. I don't care what he thinks. I'm getting enough money to raise my kid. I got my own Section 8 house. I've got food stamps. I do a little side hustle. And I'm a, I'm a free person, and I've got my kid, and now I can have the love I never got at home. Well, that doesn't work yes. out well for anybody.
1: Yes. Yes, especially for the kids. Um, All right, well, let's talk about this, uh, the aspects of religion. And one thing that's uh, been very unfortunate, not necessarily for people in prison or fatherless um, boys, I mean, for everybody, uh, with COVID, because, you know, we were told not to uh, um, go to religious services, or, or actually churches and synagogues were told not to hold religious services, because of COVID, and that has been, that in itself has been such, has had such an impact on us. We need religion to, especially in uh, times of crisis, we need to feel uh, hope, and um, that has really done a lot of damage, aside from, you know, for fatherless boys and girls, and for just everybody.
2: Well, there's no doubt, and, you know, if you look at the long-term studies, it is so much less likely for a son or daughter of a fatherless family to be involved in a church, synagogue, or mosque. It's very low percentages. Um, and, and I think there's a good reason. I mean, if, look, if your father leaves home, you're going, God, why did, why did you create a family where my dad abandons me? And how can I look at God the Father if I don't have a father? And, and all three of these guys address that and go through that. I love what Carlos said, you know, I, I, was, I was baptized, but, you know, by the time I was like five, God had left the house. My mother was, uh, was being abused by men. My father was never around. And God, what kind of a God would do this to a young man like me? I, what, what did I do to deserve this life? So these guys were angry at God, right? Um, and then yeah. they came to God. Yeah. And then God became the Father um that they never had and then they were able to ask forgiveness and seek forgiveness and then become the fathers they never had. And they broke the cycle of fatherlessness. And they were so proud of that. Like rather than have another generation of fatherless kids, they put an end to that. And that's a beautiful thing. Um that's why the film that's where the film lands squarely at the end. That for many people in this country, whether you're in prison or not, without God there's no hope. And, and without God, there's no structure. Without God and, and, and a set of rules that, that, that actually make you freer. And I have found in my faith walk that I'm so much freer because of my faith walk than I was without one. Um, and that's a hard thing to wrap your head around if you're not a Christian. But anyone who's walked around through the world knows that rules help you be more free. When there are no rules whatsoever, you do this with a child and say there are no rules. You've created a terrible life for your kids. Um, They need rules. Uh, They need rules and they need discipline. And without it, in fact, Leslie Williams at the end of the film cries because he said, I just, I wished I had a father who would discipline me, who would have told me what I was doing was wrong. I longed for that father and I longed for the father who encouraged me. So imagine he was looking for both encouragement and discipline. And these are the two things mothers and fathers do for kids. They encourage And they discipline. They set rules and habits. And then the kids have to learn and negotiate life with rules, which there's always going to be rules in life. And how do we deal with authority? We're always going to have authority around us. Um, How do we handle that? Uh, How do we negotiate that? How do we live with that? And how do we learn to like certain amount of rules in our lives um, that make our lives better and freer? Um, So that, that, I think, is what the film really tackles at the end, this really hopeful message that you can actually have been in prison, come out and live an incredibly beautiful, productive, and loving life. And you could have had no father, and your father could not have had a father. But this role of God uh, in these three men's lives, and by the way, in I would say probably 60 to 70% of Americans, God plays a role in their life in some form, in some formative and substantive way. And to not look at the religious... And the spiritual dimension of man and just the material dimension is a, is a, is a, is a sad part of, I think, modern culture. Is the movies have very little to do with this aspect of life. The daily news, very little of it. And daily media that spends no time on this all-important subject. Because I don't think the, the current modern media knows how to deal with it or really cares
1: yeah. about it. Um, yeah.
2: But a, a lot of Americans continue to care despite what the media's predilections are.
1: Yes, absolutely. Now, we only have a couple of minutes left, and could you tell people two things? One, where they can find the film, and two, where they can find your show, Our American Stories. Sure,
2: I'll start with Our American Stories first. You can just go to ouramericanstories.com and all of our content's there. You can also just tell Alexa... Alexa, I want to listen to Our American okay, Stories, and, and you're in. Um, and the same with Apple and Siri. So the good news is um, all of that's set up. For The Streets Were My Father, you can go to thestreetsweremyfather.com, uh, and that's, again, thestreetsweremyfather.com, and you can stream the movie, you can buy a disc, you can rent it. It's available uh, up right, uh, click through the website, and you'll find uh, the place to go and watch it.
1: Okay, great, because I really think a lot of people have been their their interest has been peaked in both your radio show and in uh, uh, the film, um, so I think they want to hear more than what we were able to convey in this hour. Well, I want to thank you so much. Um, I really think, uh, I don't know, are you planning on doing anything more with, well, I, I know you've been traveling around with the film, right, trying to convey the message that
2: there is hope? Oh, my goodness. We've, we've, we've played, we're, we're now being, some of the biggest churches in the country have asked to, to film this for Sundays um, uh, because the, the, the mission would be, wow, look at what we can do. Look at how we can love uh-huh. a stranger. Um, and, and by uh-huh. the way, that is what storytelling does. We want to imitate the stories we watch. This is the power of storytelling. Mm-hmm. It's imitative power. Let's become the heroes in the films we watch. Oh, my goodness. We can do this. We can change another human being's life for the better. What a thing to do. It's the, it's the greatest fulfillment you can get in your life <clears throat> is when you forget about yourself and you serve others. This is what drives human happiness and fulfillment. We know this.
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, um, for being a guest on my show, um, Lee Habib. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
0: Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.